welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Good afternoon, podcast listeners. This is Kathleen Hallisey. I'm joined by my colleague, Felina Grosvenor, on the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a recent play starring Jodie Comer entitled Prima Facia, which is about topics that we often discuss, which are sexual assault and rape. I'm letting you guys know that now, as I appreciate that that could be triggering for some people who might listen to our podcast. So if that's something that might be a bit too much for you to hear about today, then now's the time to switch off and go make yourself a nice cold drink on this hot day and do something else. Otherwise, for everyone else, we look forward to joining you on this very important podcast. So Felina, it's become a little bit of a team thing that we've we've been all gone to see this play now starring Jodie Comer, which thankfully, if you couldn't see it in the theater, it was actually videoed and you can actually see it in the cinema, which is what each of us has done so far. And I think we've all been incredibly moved by it. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the play, where it came from and how the whole thing started, really. Thanks, Kathleen. Yes. So I think what's really interesting about this play and when you actually do go to see it is it begins in the cinema, it does anyway. It begins with a roundtable discussion with the woman who created the script. Um, her name's Susie Miller. So starting really with how this play was born out, she has a background in law herself, which I thought was really interesting. She's worked as a human rights lawyer and a children's rights lawyer. And she talks in the discussion um, with other people who are involved in the play, including Jodie herself. And she talks about how she has that background and how she's done all this research and discovered problems, to put it simply. And so what the focus in, in the roundtable discussion is, and what really is the crux to the story, the play, is that the law, the investigation, and the courtroom itself, it isn't fit for purpose for sexual assault cases. And the why and how of this is what's explored in the play itself. So I think it's great to hear that from Susie Miller herself at the start. And then you have an idea of more sort of the underlying issues of what this play is trying to address. And so the play itself, it's Jodie Comer, it's a one-woman play, and she plays a lawyer who is cutthroat, she's specialist, and she started to get a bit of a reputation of defending men who are accused of sexual assault. And so she herself faces women in court as her you know, opposition witness, her prosecution witness that she cross-examines. So she's challenging them and challenging their account of sexual assault. And so for those listening who don't know, in a criminal context, the prosecution have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant did what they did. So that just, in plain language, it means be sure. So it means you are sure that what that 
complainant, that victim, that survivor, what they say happened is true. And if there's any doubt there, then there's no conviction. So the defence barrister's role, which is Jodie Comer's role in the play, is called so-called to protect, it's often coined the presumption of innocence. And that means presuming, obviously, that someone is innocent rather than guilty. And so she, at the beginning of the play, is talking about how she's fighting for the presumption of innocence. It's her job to test the evidence. It's not her job to look at the truth. And I think that that's something worth sort of pausing on. You know, it's not about the truth. And I think for a lot of people maybe who have have no experience of the criminal justice system, that in itself, which is just the opening of the play, is, is kind of shocking. Why isn't this lawyer interested in what the truth is? So the play moves on and she is explaining, you know, that in court it's one word against another often with sexual assault cases. She's testing the evidence and she does well. She trips up her prosecution witness and she often wins her cases. And then, as as has been sort of, I, I think most people know, this isn't really a spoiler, but she is assaulted herself. And so she finds herself in that exact position that she has so often been on the other side of the table for. She's been in that position of strength. And now she finds herself in a very, very different position. And yeah, that's the sort of twist, I suppose. And it's the play really focuses on her realizations going from one to the other, which maybe you wouldn't see as clearly if you hadn't, if you haven't been in any criminal context. And if you haven't been assaulted yourself, it's kind of hard to see. I think it was interesting. I know in the the play, obviously, as you've mentioned, Felina, she talks a lot about the presumption of innocence being kind of a bedrock of our criminal justice system, obviously here in the UK and and also in the US and and other jurisdictions as well, and how she's really fighting for that. And that's what she truly believes in. And I think it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of whether the presumption of innocence fits squarely in a sexual assault case, because I think often the tables are flipped where in fact it's the victim who we're assuming is, is guilty, so to speak, or is to blame. And so the entire kind of way that we think about criminal justice and presumption of innocence is is flipped from the start, I think, really. One of the things that also does come up is the issue of consent, which is obviously very topical at the moment. The FA has just announced mandatory consent training, sexual assault and consent training for all um, Premier League players, because there's as I'm sure people have read in the headlines, there's been quite a few reports recently of Premier League footballers being accused of sexual assault and rape. And and we know generally that consent is is a huge issue. And I know, Flannery, you'll talk in a little bit about the school's consent project, but you know we're in a, in a moment in time with Me Too movement and, and other sexual abuse and sexual assault scandals that it is a really important conversation that we're having about consent. And, and I felt like that was dealt with really well in the play. And essentially, again, we are giving lots of spoilers here, but we just think that this is such an important piece of work to talk about. She has a sexual relationship with the person who then goes on to rape her, and and he's a colleague, and they have sex once in the office, and then they go on a date, and they go back to hers, and they've been drinking, and they have sex again. That's consensual. And then she ends up becoming really sick from probably drinking too much, and he brings her back to bed and then proceeds to rape her when she's just been ill, and, and she is saying no and trying to get him off of her. So it is an acquaintance rape type of situation, but 
what's put to her in cross-examination. It's very similar questions to, to what she would be putting to prosecution witnesses when she was the defense barrister are things like, how much did you have to drink? Hadn't you had sex before? How was he restraining you? What did you do to try and resist? And things like that. And so I think it raises a really important conversation, which is the conversations that are going on now and, and hopefully is going to be part of the training that's given to Premier League footballers and, and others generally, I think, need this training is what is consent and that just because you have had sex with a person at one point in an evening, you could not consent later on in the evening or you know within minutes you could withdraw your consent and really understanding what that looks like. And just also talking about how consent works in criminal and civil situations. In a criminal case, there's an age of consent. So, you know, under 16, you're not able to consent. In the civil context, so in a civil claim, there is no age of consent. So it's completely factual and subjective. So you could be under the age of 16, you could be 13, and, and a court could decide that you had, in fact, consented. And certainly that's a part of the civil justice system that is something that people like myself who do this type of work and, and others are certainly trying to campaign against that consent shouldn't be fact-specific in a, in a civil case. It should follow the criminal law. On that point, you know, it's maybe it's not the right term, but it's old-fashioned to think that not consenting requires someone to say no or requires someone to fight back or, you know, requires the victim to do something specific. And I think that, that obviously comes down to, you know, in the play when she's asked all those questions and what you were saying, Kathleen, just now, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. And I think, you know, training for judges and barristers and everyone, you know, you need to look at it very differently in a in a sexual assault case because not consenting can be freezing and not doing anything, but that doesn't look like consent. And I don't think anyone would say it looks like consent. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this brings us to to one of the the topics that does come up in, in the play, which is that, and really how the whole thing came about, as you said at the outset, Felina, with the playwright Susie Miller, looking at kind of the system being broken in terms of, well, that's a bigger topic, but the system at least being broken in terms of sexual assault, and that it doesn't fit nicely into the criminal justice system that we have. There are jurisdictions that do have a specialist sexual assault courts and what that looks like and, and how that would maybe work in the UK. I think one of the things you know you had mentioned, Felina, was about how trauma affects victims differently in sexual assault and rape situations. And so they might remember things differently than what we would expect a victim in, say, a burglary case, how they might remember. Yeah, I think we just we discussed this off recording actually when we after we saw the play. And I was saying that what Jodie Comer, obviously playing her role, shows really clearly is she's being asked all these questions. She's being, you know, bamboozled. And her memory is just completely different to, as you just said, someone who has been subject to, you know, a nonviolent threat. They could quite easily remember what's happened. Whereas a sexual assault victim, they can't readily remember. And then she's being bombarded. And it actually helps her remember And so while she's on the stand, she says, I get it. I know what's happened. And she gives an explanation. But to a juror, they think, well, you've just suddenly come up with a reason. Why could you not give that reason earlier? Why, you know, didn't you give it to your police statement? And it looks ungenuine, but it is genuine because that is sadly what trauma does. It blocks memories off 
and they come through at you know unideal times. And again, that's just as you say a perfect example of how it doesn't fit nicely into you know what we as the general public and and any juror that would be sitting there hearing that case would think memory looks like, and so it just instantly diminishes her credibility, doesn't it? Because there hasn't been any kind of foundation laid for how trauma works and how that can affect memory in the brain. And and I think, again, that speaks to why, you know, maybe we should be looking at, you know, specialist sexual assault and rape courts. You know, obviously we do have the victim's code, which, you know, enshrines a lot of things that should be happening in terms of victims when they report and them being kept abreast of what's happening with investigations and and how they should be dealt with throughout the criminal process. And there is now a victim bill of rights that's before parliament. However, the victim's code says that it's compulsory, mandatory, it must be followed. So police have obligations under it. The state has obligations under the victim's code to victims and they have to follow that. But what's happening now in parliament, which a lot of people might not know about, is that the victim's bill of rights that's being debated and considered at the moment is essentially saying that the victim's code would, or failure to follow the victim's code, I should say, would mean no liability. And so essentially that really creates a really toothless document that is meant to protect victims and create some rights for them that they haven't really had before. So, you know, I don't know how how you feel about that, Felina. I mean, I certainly think that's something that's really concerning. Yeah. So is that then, if it's not followed by police and CPS, so what is the consequence then of it not being respected and, and victims still being left without, you know, the things that help them the things that actually get them through court at the end of the day and get them through that trauma so if someone doesn't abide by something that we're told yes you must you must but they don't well then what what what's the redress nothing yeah Exactly. And, and, you know, I don't think, you know, it's it's not as though we're lawyers who are looking to create a situation where we can go and, you know, sue the police because they have failed to follow the victim's code. That's not the approach that we're taking. We obviously act on behalf of victims and survivors and we want the best for them. But you know, try and take a collaborative approach to these things and understanding how the system works. But I don't think anybody is looking to say there has to be a legal liability here. You know, we want to be able to sue the police, but there has to be some consequence for failing to follow the victim's code. Otherwise, I think it's a really worthless document in some ways. And if, if that isn't going to be a legal liability in terms of the ability to, to sue, then is it a professional liability? Is it a some type of professional discipline that you know would be faced if you if you didn't adhere to the victim's code? I, I just think that there has to be some consequence there. Otherwise, the victim's code is a, is a great document, but it will end up being nothing more than that. And, and you know, one of the things that I have always thought about the victim's code, I mean, there's multiple parts to it, as we know, but I certainly have had the experience very often of clients reporting to the police, and then it can take years to see through a criminal prosecution and not being kept abreast of what's happening and having to be in the position constantly of chasing the police to find out what's going on. And, and I say that with the utmost respect and, and understanding that the police are doing a difficult job and are, you know, overworked and underpaid as many civil servants are. But, you know, obviously my job is to look at it from the perspective of a victim and survivor. And and, and that's a really difficult thing. If, you know, it, it's, it's hard enough to come forward and disclose. We know that rape prosecutions are at a historic all-time low which is, you know, further putting off people reporting. And then in addition to that, you know, they're not keeping kept up date. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Felina. Sorry, no, on, the, on that point of what you were just saying, 
I think everyone, whether you work in law or not, or whether you have experienced a crime or not, you can all see how, especially in sexual assault cases, how important the victim's account is and how if they're not able to give their best account, there's usually not other witnesses. In, in sexual assaults, usually it's one against another. It's only two people in that room in that situation. And so if the victim's code isn't appropriately followed to allow that victim to give their best evidence, then it leads to, as you said, low prosecutions because these victims can't do it without all that support. That's, there's a reason why the code exists. And so there should be consequences, as you said, whether that's, you know, being able to sue or whether it's, you know, disciplinary or training or whatever it may be, that failure can directly be the reason why a prosecution fails. So that means that a victim's left without justice and potentially a very dangerous person is still dangerous, is still out in society and there's been no consequences for them either. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's something that actually comes up in, in the play where Jody Comer is cross-examining a prosecution witness, the victim of, of a rape, and the woman says to her, I'm doing this for all the other women, you know, to basically get this person off the streets. He's he's a rapist. And, you know, Jody at that point is has not been a victim herself and, and she's just doing her job, which is to poke holes in the prosecution's case and cross-examine the witness. And when she is sadly the victim who is then being cross-examined, she says, which just really stuck with me, look to your left and look to your right. I'm broken too, and I will not be silenced. And I think that that is really what this conversation is about. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that that's what the conversation that the play is going to bring about as more and more people see it. And I think it's getting a lot of traction on social media. And so I'm hoping more people will go and see it. Obviously, we've talked about the FA introducing mandatory consent training. You know, we've just had Merseyside Police last week apologizing to a rape victim who received a letter saying that without CCTV footage or witness account, it's unlikely that CPS would prosecute. Again, that just speaks to all the issues we're talking about, which is that, you know, rape doesn't often happen in front of a victim. <laughs> in front of a witness, excuse me, or there would be CCTV footage of an incident. So, you know, I think that I'm hoping that we're at a tipping point or, or at the beginning of a tipping point in terms of what needs to change and where we go from here. And that, and that there is, uh, I hope, uh, an, an open dialogue about the possibility of specialist sexual assault courts. Yeah, I think anyone would get such an education watching this play. You know, it obviously is a very, you know, it can be a really upsetting watch but I think honestly I left it and I thought I, I would love for every person I've ever met to watch the play and just see it from you know that point of view I think it's really educational and and on that point the play is partnered with a it's called the school's consent project and I think it's it's just great I think the play is really as I said educational and it's just doing the exact same thing in schools so the project itself was set up by a barrister. Her name's Kate Parker. And so this is a charitable project where lawyers go into schools, so 11 to 18-year-olds, and they teach them the legal definitions of consent and regarding key sexual offences. And so it's all about educating at the source, basically, before these people are you know, old enough to find themselves in really unfortunate situations and it's to, well, firstly, normalise the conversations. You know, these people are at the age where they are going to be sexually active, you know, not long after and um, or could already be sexually active. And, 
you know, you need to be able to talk about these things. It's always so taboo and, you know, how are you ever meant to get any advice if it's something you can't talk about? And obviously we're in a world now where technology is king and, you know, everyone would know, you know, Snapchat, nudes, revenge porn, all of that is so rife now. You need that education young because these kids, I don't know, how, how long do children actually have a phone for, you know, before 11 years old? So they're kind of thrown in at the deep end where there's all this sexualization. And it's to also teach, you know, kids who might not understand showing someone else a naked picture. That's an offense. You know, if someone sends you a naked picture, they're an underage child, which is terrible enough. And then, you know, if they share it, they're committing a crime. So, you know, it's to avoid all of these potential offences, potential trauma for these people, really, and just educate about things, you know, as I've said, revenge porn and upskirting. These things are quite new terms. So um, I think, yeah, absolutely great project. And for anyone listening, do have a look at it. They're trying to make it bigger and more countrywide. So I think if anyone wanted to volunteer or donate um it's a really really great project yeah absolutely i mean i think you know you raise a great point which is that it starts with other education doesn't it i mean we need to be educating kind of young people the next generation but i also think that we do need to be educating older people myself included i mean obviously i'm familiar with all of these topics but it really gives you food for thought and i think we need to start changing our views on on what consent looks like yeah, I agree. I think everyone will have heard the term the perfect victim, you know, and it's like when you think of that, you think, oh, you know, someone who is sure about their account, you know, doesn't get too emotional on the stand. They look a certain way. They act a certain way. They've never slept with the person that they're accusing before. They weren't intoxicated. And it's just it, it, it makes no sense and it's not real life. Yeah. And in some ways I think it's the perfect victim and, and equally the perfect crime when it comes to rape, because if it's a, you know, violent stranger rape, then that kind of is the perfect crime and the perfect victim, isn't it? But most rapes don't happen in that context. They have, some do, but most happen in the context of an acquaintance rape. And so we need to start looking at that and understanding more of what that looks like, you know, and the nuances of it. Fantastic show. I can't recommend it enough. I'm so glad we've all seen it. And um, I'm sure we'll be having many more conversations off <laughs> offline, so to speak, about this. You know, aside from uh, Jodie Comer is just an amazing actress and a one woman play, just incredible. But the topic itself, just really pertinent and moving and topical. So, and starting an important conversation, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so Felina, thanks so much for, for joining me today to talk about this very important play. Again, can't recommend enough that people go, get out and see it. Men, women, maybe children, it'd be a bit, depending on the age. <laughs> so you'd have to, you know, age warning, probably over 12, I would have think at least, but certainly everybody should be seeing this in my view. So thanks everyone for joining in. If there's anything that we've discussed today that you want to raise with us, then please feel free to get in touch. Or if there's things that you'd like to hear us talk about on another episode, please also let us know and we'd be happy to take a look at that as well. That's it for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, We'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.